Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, it is the drug that everyone seems to be talking about, especially on social media today. Ozempic, it's just a trade name. It's been around for a while still, from celebrities to social media. The drug to treat type 2 diabetes is being touted as something of a weight loss wonder drug. What do you need to know? We get the skinny from Dr. Ali Zentner. Talk about a tissue issue. Kimberly Clark is pulling the iconic Kleenex brand from Canadian store shelves, citing, quote, unique complexities in Canada. So why are they making the move? And it's not the first big brand to bail on Canada. We find out why. But first, it's been more than a week now since that deadline to evacuate the city of Yellowknife. 19,000 plus people uh, left due to the threat of wildfires. We talked to the territorial government about their response, find out how one evacuee family is doing after calling a hotel near Edmonton home for more than a week now. We learn why some who've been in government are less than impressed with the government's response to this crisis. And we meet one of the few still in Yellowknife to find out what the situation is like tonight in the Northwest Territories capital. Let's start uh, in the Northwest Territories tonight. It's been more than a week now since the 12 noon Friday deadline for the more than 20,000 people who call Yellowknife home to leave the capital of the Northwest Territories because of the ongoing threat of those out-of-control wildfires. In an update last night, the territorial government said it was unlikely the fire would reach the city in the next 72 hours. It remains about 15 kilometers outside city limits, but it came with a warning that higher temperatures again, 15 degrees higher than normal apparently, low moisture, strong winds, could see that fire move again. Uh, The fire threat is still high in other communities further south towards the Alberta border as well, including Hay River and Fort Smith. People there have been out of their homes for upwards of 10 days. Now, add it all up, 237 active fires burning in the Northwest Territories and more than two-thirds of the 45,000-plus residents who call the territory home are living elsewhere tonight. Evacuation centers, hotels, family, uh, you name it. Many seeking refuge, of course, in Alberta. And Calgary is where the territory's premier, Carolyn Cochran, was today, touring a reception center alongside Alberta's Daniel Smith. Of course, Alberta has really stepped up to help out the evacuees. Cochran, though, we wanted to talk about some broader issues, saying communication technologies and insufficient road access has caused serious issues for everyone in the Northwest Territories during this wildfire season. The smoke was overcome. Our communications went down. We have no redundancy. I couldn't get a hold of people. They couldn't know if they were safe, if they were evacuated or not. So I've been screaming for infrastructure for decades, all of us. Whose fault is it when we can't get people out because we don't have basic infrastructure that every Canadian takes for granted. So I'm tired. I've been tired for a long time for asking for infrastructure, and now I'm angry. Right. Uh, In the immediate, in the near future at least, there's still no word, obviously, on when people will be able to head home. Uh, The government's facing some criticism for a lack of planning, poor communication, and the financial burden that many evacuees find themselves coping with. Uh, The Northwest Territories Legislature is set to reconvene for one day on Monday to deal with the fallout from the fire, including getting financial aid to those evacuees. But joining me now is Shane Thompson. He's Minister of Environment and Climate Change and Minister of Municipal and Community Affairs uh, for the Northwest Territories. Uh, Shane, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I guess just uh, an update on, on on the fire situation. I understand there's been a bit of improvement over the last uh, 24 hours or so, but the situation is still a threat to a lot of the communities where people find themselves not at home tonight. 
Yeah, I would say the work that we've been able to do and weather has been cooperative, but we're still have fires are out of control. Um, but Hay River and Fort Smith are in, I would say, very trying times right now because we're the weather is going to get really up hot up there uh, and we're seeing the winds there so it's having an impact on uh, those fires i mean we had a little bit of good news yesterday we were able to get uh, residents back into jean marie river so um, the order has been lifted and they are now on alert of course people i mean it's been a week right and very few people i think pack up their bags and leave home without thinking maybe they'll be back within seven days and here we are seven days later and it doesn't look like it's imminent does it uh, no, well, this fire season's been unpredictable. It's been, we brought in former, uh, firefighters and, you know, former deputy ministers and everything that I've heard from them talk about. It's unprecedented. We don't, it, the fires are acting differently. The weather has been different. Our summer season should be a little bit cooler. We're seeing temperatures 15 degrees higher. So the last map I saw, infrared one, uh, one finger had uh, just over 200 hot spots. The other side probably had about 180, 190 hot spots. So if the infrared's picking up, that means it's pretty uh, deep into the ground. So we need to be able to work on that. So got to get that under control before we even start thinking about getting people back home. Right. Uh, well, I mean, I, I understand, of course, there's been people trying to come back. Uh, people are getting frustrated uh, as as to be expected. I mean, people are out of pocket. It's been it's tough for all those. I'm sure you understand that. What do you tell uh, evacuees now about what kind of help they can expect and uh, how much the, the provincial, the territorial government understands their frustrations? Well, I can tell you we understand their frustrations. I've been dealing, we're providing the accommodations and food, and basically that's through uh, the Alberta government. There are host provinces that are bringing bringing in our evacuees. About six to eight percent of our population is out there. So the host province of you know Alberta and Manitoba are providing um, accommodation and food. Um, but, you know, they're doing it on our behalf and the costs are going to be covered by us uh, later on. At the end of the day, it's about our residents and we're trying to do as much as we can for our residents to make their displacement as comfortable as possible. How much of a challenge has the communications been? Because people I've spoken to, obviously, we've spoken to evacuees, we've spoken to others who are who are saying that you know, it hasn't been, a lot of information hasn't been done effectively. What do you say to that? Why would that be? I mean... Understandably, we, we you can't plan for everything, but was there a proper plan in place for something like this and how to communicate it to the population? Well, we, we had plans. Every community has their emergency management plans in place. Um, but unfortunately, I can honestly say we didn't expect 68% of our population to be evacuated. We were able to get 25,800 people out of the Northwest Territories safely. Moving the city Yellowknife, we did that in less than 48 hours. So again, it was working with the city of Yellowknife and the communities of Deda and Delo um, to get the people out as well when we were working with the town of Hay River and in town of Fort Smith. I mean, they had less time to get out. I think Hay River was probably less than 12 hours to get everybody out of that community. Has, is the federal government doing enough to help you now? I know there's been, you know, certainly there's been some, uh, there's been people talking, the ministers, the federal ministers have been talking about it, but are you communicating well and are you getting the help you need from Ottawa? Yeah, I, I have to say 
uh, when it, the season started out, it was Minister Blair, uh, Minister Gibeau, and Minister Wilkinson um, reached out to us at the very beginning. I had a really good relationship with them, and even though we had the cabinet shuffle, um, I can say Minister Sajan has been nothing but uh, cooperative, uh, asking us what we need. Uh, we got support from the military, Public Safety Canada, Joint Task Force North. Um, we've got a lot of support from the federal government um, to make sure uh, we're able to, you know, meet our needs, um, supplement our workforce, our, you know, our firefighters, but are also our territorial emergency management team. Both Minister Blair and Minister Sajan have been nothing but cooperative. Right. Uh, your, your colleague, the Premier Carolyn Cochran, was in Alberta in Calgary today touring uh, an evacuee facility with uh Alberta's Premier Daniel Smith, and she brought up this idea that for many years, people have been trying to sound the alarm about a lack of infrastructure, whether it be roads, communications in the north, and that this emergency highlights many of those problems, things that could have been looked after many years ago have not been. Uh, how much, I mean, this is there's going to be a reckoning when this is done about what kind of uh, infrastructure uh, a community like Yellowknife or the Northwest Territories needs. Yeah, well, the thing is, is that I, I have to echo what the Premier said when you look at it. There's one road in, one road out. So um, that has been a challenge. But, I mean, we have communities that don't even have any roads. Um, right. Compared to southern Canada, these are some of the challenges that we face. This has been the norm of, you know, the existence of the Northwest Territories. Is There's always been one road in, one road out. Right. Just looking ahead for the next, you know, uh, 96 hours or so, what are, the, what, what are you looking at? What are the challenges? And what do you tell all the evacuees out there away from home again tonight? Well, the thing is, is I can tell you right now, we could be in for a tough 48, 60 or 96 hours, uh, depending on the situation. So we're just trying to make sure uh, we protect our communities as best we can. Well, Minister Thompson, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. In the last segment, we heard from Shane Thompson, the Minister of Environment and Climate Change in the Northwest Territories. We've been talking about the fact that it's been more than a week now since the entire capital, uh, the deadline for everyone to leave, 20,000 plus under that order, uh, about 19,000 did indeed leave. They're elsewhere tonight, many of them making that very long and slow drive to Alberta. And then uh, for a lot of them, it's been it's been an expensive ride, right? They've had to pay out of pocket to get there. Uh, there is assistance, obviously, but it's been tough for a lot of people out there tonight. Also, about there's been some complaints about the communication and just the whole the way the whole thing was planned as minister thompson pointed out you know uh, it's it's it was tough to know that you're going to have to evacuate the entire capital uh, still it's you know for a lot of people out there it's been a slog laura dignis husband uh, her husband and three kids and her stepmom two dogs packed into two vehicles for a 20 hour drive to alberta last week costs so far for them about 5 grand and counting it was pretty long we ended up having to take two vehicles it definitely hasn't been a cheap trip that we weren't expecting Indeed. Joining me now with more on this is former Northwest Territories MLA for Yellowknife uh, Centre, Robert Hawkins. He's in Calgary tonight. Robert, thanks. Uh, good evening. Good. Tell, I mean, you've been uh, keeping an eye on things. You've been on social media. What's the mood like with uh, with, with evacuees out there? And, and what's your assessment? I mean, you've been in government. What's your assessment of the response so far? I guess the mood, uh, stressed, exhausted, worried, uh, very confused. And if I may say anything, it just seems as if there's an unclear narrative coming out of the government. This isn't the first fire this year. As a matter of fact, we had three in a row uh, previous to this sort of 
bad wave of multiple communities at once. So a lot of people are really concerned about sort of the messaging, the plan, or I should say lack of planning, but the confusion of policy mix, if that makes any sense. Right. What would be a good example of that? Because I think even just the, the, the order to evacuate Yellowknife itself sort of came. I mean, I was speaking to the mayor two nights before that, and she was like, well, you know, probably not. And I think most people felt that way. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, when I found out that there would be an announcement to evacuate the city, that was probably early Wednesday a week ago. Uh, so uh, what's that, nine days ago, 10 days ago? But by that time, I'd heard people were already pulling out because the message throughout the city had uh, spread, you know, I just do this pun, like wildfire. Mm-hmm. Um, so the communication of how it was uh, sent out, so in other words, they could have done a pending prep. Um, this is, again, the, this is a multiple exercise they've had this year. So we had three small communities go through fire evacuations this year. And hence, you'd think that, uh, heck, this wasn't their first time. I don't mean to be critical. I know it's a stressful time for everyone, Absolutely. but uh, but these are becoming normal things, which is a shame. And we have to sort of figure out how to plan for the future. I think everyone understands how complex an evacuation like this would be. Uh, and there are things that will need to be looked at long term. I think you've talked about there needing to be a transparent re- reckoning of, of how this was handled once it's all said and done. But there are things you can fix on the fly. And one of them is communications. Yes. Well, one of the mix-ups that you could see right away uh, watching um, the newscast would be, quite frankly, the politicians really got in the way of the good information provided by uh, the people or the boots on the ground, you know, the technical experts. But you would almost think in an emergency situation, the silos or the walls would be immediately collapsed and people would know who to communicate with and through. And that almost seemed to be the difficult challenge. Even now when they're inventing policy to come up with a financial process for those who evacuated and I cannot stress enough, those who followed the order and instructions, it, it really seems as if they're still making things up and trying to figure out how to uh, plug holes like the Dutch boy. Yeah, I remember once being told that, you know, you don't want to have to dust off that emergency plan when the emergency is unfolding in front of you, right? It should be done in advance. <laughs> I know that's a lot to ask sometimes, uh, but, you know, that's that's I think that's what people expect. Well, I almost, uh, you know, in a way I'm going to say I almost disagree that, I mean, these are things, it's sad to say, I mean, you had Fort McMurray uh, go off a few, some time ago, and really that's the announcement or should have gotten people's attention about how quick things can go for the, from bad to worse. And so you would think any municipal um, minister, so like at the provincial level, the municipal minister would be drafting uh, evacuation plans and then bringing them to the, each municipality and said, okay, we've structured and framed these things up. This is how we communicate. Now you dial into the specifics of your what means something to you. Like every municipality is absolutely different. And so they'll right. have different worries and different aspects. But that said, the bring it to the 90% would have been the way to go. Now, as I mentioned, there were three other uh, small towns that we've gone through this evacuation. I mean, they weren't running the, evac- uh, the MO office uh, 24 hours a day, which they probably should have been. So when they were having problems after hours, nobody knew who to call. And as a matter of fact, I know this almost sounds funny, but when I was driving back to the Northwest Territories a few days ago, um, or well, a week ago, on holidays, even the announcement was the highways were open. Right. When you called the 1-800 number, even, but they were blocked. <laughs> so right. communication. If there was one thing you could change now, that's while, it's still, while people are still out and while the emergency is still unfolding, what would it be? Well, I'm going to have to say... Uh, one person talking, uh, and certainly in the sense of trying to lead us with some hope. 
Uh, gold standard goes to Nahin Ninchi uh, when he was mayor of uh, Calgary. Even at times when he didn't have a message of saying we've technically fixed this or we've officially solved this problem, I mean, he, he really was a guiding light through our city. So if I had some uh, thoughts right now, I would say we just really need one person guiding us. And I think that could help inspire people by saying we're trying our best. This is what we've got today and this is where we're going. And we'll try to do a little further and get the problem solved a little more tomorrow. But working together is really the only way to do this. And I think that's really helpful because at least the first four or five, if not six days, there was more information being passed along Facebook amongst the victims of the evacuation as opposed Mm -hmm. to being led by the government. Right. Well, Robert Hawkins, I really appreciate your insight on this. Thanks so much for your time tonight. The very best to you and uh, certainly your listeners. Thank you very much for your time. It's been uh, more than a week now since that uh, deadline for everyone to leave Yellowknife. Uh, 19,000 plus people did. There's still about 1,600 people left behind doing work there. It's really hard to imagine packing up everything you can, leaving your home, not sure when you'll be back, sometimes not sure if you'll have a home to go back to, although the fire is still about 15 kilometers outside the city tonight. That's been the reality, though, for some 25,000 people uh, across the Northwest Territories in the past few weeks. Uh, Two-thirds of the residents of the territory are out of their homes this evening. Uh, And that has been a a real struggle for some, because keep in mind, you know, you may get, there may be some places to go where you can get support, but really you're probably out of pocket for food, gas, maybe lodging in the short term. Uh, The territorial government says there will be compensation. They haven't explained exactly how that's going to work. And the federal government says it's ready to help too. Here's what Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland had to say on Wednesday. We're very happy to work with the government, with the leadership of the Northwest Territories on what might be some extraordinary expenses. The important thing is for people to be safe today, and then the important thing is for people to be able to rebuild their lives. The words are nice. I don't know if that helps much. It does much to ease the stress for all those evacuees out there tonight, such as my next guest, Robin Scott, her partner, two kids, two dogs, headed to just outside of Edmonton, where a Holiday Inn Express in Leduc has been home for more than a week now. Robin, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Ben. So, I mean, just the whole, reading the story, the inter- and your story is not the only one, but just reading that interview you gave about, about having to pack everything up, what an ordeal, and the drive itself must have been an ordeal. I mean, it's been a rough, uh, a rough eight days. Sure. Actually, I'm in a unique situation, but I'm a teacher, and so I was already traveling when the evacuation came, and oh, so good. I had to arrange our evacuation from distance. My oh. house and dog sitter traveled out with my truck and my two dogs to meet my children and I in Edmonton as we were heading home. Wow. So, I mean, in that circumstance, as you find mm-hmm. yourself like so many others now, though, right, having to try to figure out what you're going to do, uh, there seems to be no timeline on when you're going to be able to go back. So wh- how does that work? You're staying in a hotel with, with your whole family. And, I, you know, I've stayed in hotels for long times over periods. It sounds good for the first two nights, and it, it isn't great after that. A lot of people keep saying to me that we should treat it like a vacation, but honestly, it feels like anything else but um, especially with the sense of uncertainty, it's, it's a lot of hurry up and, and just wait and see. And that's, that's creating a feeling of unsettlement for myself, for my children, and, and for sort of what's coming next. Yeah. How does that manifest itself? Because I heard you talking a bit about the financial burden, and I think that's something that a lot of people, we've talked, we talked about it in the last half hour as well, that a lot of people who, are, who, who either couldn't get home like you in your situation or have had to leave mm-hmm. now find themselves in a situation where, you know, there are bills to pay back home still, presumably, and then you find yourself sort of, sort of on this impromptu quote-unquote vacation. 
Sure, and I want to acknowledge that I come very much from a place of privilege. I have a good job. I, I'm very fortunate that way. But I can see that as I'm continuing to put out hundreds of dollars, eventually I see this reaching into the thousands of dollars by the time we get back home. I, I meticulously manage my life. I work very hard to stay out of debt, and I see this as a financially bur- been a financial burden that I'm going to have a hard time recovering from, even from my place where generally I, I'm okay in my life financially. Right. I'm sure, obviously, given that, you you, you will understand. I, I know, and I'm sure you've been hearing this, too, if you've been on chat rooms and Facebook and so on, that a lot of people are having a tough mm-hmm. time, a really tough time with this. Absolutely. I have friends who lived in Yellowknife and were literally selling belongings to be able to buy gas in order to leave. Some of them are starting to look for work because we have all of these expenses, but we're not sure if we're going to get any compensation. There's no plan or, or unified voice from our government any sort of reassurance that we're going to be taking care of in the end. And so we're looking around going, what can we, what else can we do? And I've received so much support from local community groups, from churches offering toys and clothing and food and snacks to my children. But unfortunately, none of that support at this point is coming from our government. Now, that being said, we do have a very nice place to stay. But mm-hmm. the daily expenses of gas and activities and food is, is definitely something that we're concerned about. Right. What kind of communication have you had from from the territory in terms of what to expect uh, or, or what kind of compensation? I guess we just don't know at this point. That's right. And to tell you the truth, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about some of the things that have been coming from our government in that it feels like many things that they say either then become rescinded later or um, changed down the way in their, in their messaging. And so I've mostly turned to local media with cabin radio, staying with up-to-date information that way. But I'm not so sure I necessarily believe what the government is saying yet. And I hope that clear answers are coming soon because a lot of us feel an increased sense of dread as this gets further along. Right. You know, I I still thinking back to what you just said about people selling possessions just to be able to afford the gas for that long drive. The the drive alone is an expensive proposition. Just getting back will be an expensive proposition. And I understand that those who flew, mm-hmm. uh, who, were, who were evacuated by plane, are, are going to be flown back. But those who drove, uh, aren't. nothing has been promised about them being paid for their gas to get back either. I know that may seem like a not huge amount of money, but every little bit counts, right? Well, that can be a lot of money. That is a long... Robin, so we lost you there for just a second. You were saying uh, you were just talking about some of the stresses uh, and, and if you've heard anything about uh, being compensated for that long drive home as well. I mean, uh, people forget how far, how remote Yellowknife is and just getting to Edmonton mm-hmm. is a huge journey. It's something that most people can't do in a single drive. It's about 16-hour drive and that comes with a lot of gas that has to go along with it. And when people drove out, we did so under the understanding that that's what was required of us. They said, if you have the means to do so, drive now. But we assumed that that would come with some sort of financial help. If we had not listened to that order, if we would have stayed behind, we didn't want to increase the burden on the financial uh, on the flight plan out, but maybe we would have been better off to do so. And so I'm hoping that by looking down the line, the government's going to say, these people did what we asked, and hopefully we'll be able to get some help along the way. Yeah. How's everyone doing, by the way? I mean, it's been, it's uh, eight days, is a, is a, or eight nights, I guess, by now is, is a long time. Sure. Actually, this evening I'm attending an event here at the River Creek Casino. There's a great fundraiser event being held by the, the local band here for all of the evacuees. There's music and comedy, and so that's great. I know lots of people are attending local festivals and activities. The communities have been so good to us. But at the same time, now on our ninth day of evacuation, 
people are, are wearing thin, their energy is getting discouraged and, and there's a lot more negative talk. And so, and we know that we're still looking at possibly weeks of this. Yeah. Is there anything that you would like to hear from, from your government at this point to put you at ease? To be, and when, you, when you look at all the other evacuees as well, is there something that could be done to try to ease what is obviously we're kind of heading into a different phase of this evacuation now? And it feels like a lot of people are getting, are getting tense and getting stressed. Mm-hmm. I think what I'd like to hear is a lot of honesty from our government. We recognize that this is a new thing for us. This is an unprecedented situation. And so for them just to say, we don't know the answers yet, but we are doing our best and we are going to have answers for you soon. I think that sort of sense of transparency and honesty is what people are looking for now, not empty promises or saying we won't and then having to change that message later. Just tell us that you're working for us. And I hope to hear more from our member of Parliament and our Premier that, that really reassures people because we're looking to our leaders now to know that we're going to be okay. Right. And what about for the school year? I guess that's coming up imminently as well, right? I mean, all these things are in flux. Mm -hmm. I'm actually a high school teacher, and so it feels very strange to not be with my students. Right now, teachers are scattered across the country. We don't have our teaching resources with us, of course, not knowing we'd be away for this long. And so we're thinking about our students. We're concerned about our program delivery and our condensed school year. And so there is a lot of anxiety. I know that it's a, a big burden on families to not have their children going back to school as well. So I know that we are all ready to get back into the classroom, hopefully as soon as possible. Well, Robin, I wish you and your family all the very best in what is obviously a trying time for you and everyone else who isn't at home tonight again. And uh, hopefully you can get back, uh, get back home and get back to teaching soon. Thank you. Much love to everyone from the Northwest Territories. And I know that we're very strong together. So I'm thinking of them tonight. Well put. Robin, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Well, we spent this hour talking about uh, the ongoing wildfire emergency in the Northwest Territory, specifically about Yellowknife. It's been a, a, more than a week. It was a week today at noon local time since uh, that evacuation order took effect for everyone. Actually, the evacuation order had been in effect. That was the deadline for everyone to leave. About 19,000 people have. They're scattered in many places, mainly in Alberta uh, tonight. But there are still some in Yellowknife this evening. The government of the Northwest Territories uh, clarified its evacuation order earlier this week, uh, essentially telling non-essential people to to go, and there's still a threat there. Uh, but again, there are still there some there tonight, including my next guest, Scott Yule. Scott, thanks so much. How are you doing tonight? Good. How is it there? It must be. I mean, we've seen some pictures. It's awfully quiet in Yellowknife this evening, I gather. Oh, yeah, it's uh, creepy quiet, and it's really smoky. The smoke came in rolling again pretty thick tonight, uh, actually the last two days. And it's not very pleasant for wandering around, and that's for sure. Yeah. Tell me about your decision to stay. What was that? Uh, how did that come about? Um, my wife and I discussed it, and we have a business here in town, and I just we just felt there was a need to stay. I like to help out. I'm talking with a couple other individuals where I have a Class 1 license. I felt that could be beneficial if I need it, and turned out it was beneficial. Uh, I got a call, and I went uh, to start driving a school bus, on evacuees to the tarmac to the plane that was a pretty emotional event there and yeah. then i was on water truck hauling uh, water filling up tanks and now i've been on a roll bin truck for a company there hauling brush wherever the military clears out of an area they load it in bins we pick the bins up and we go to a secure area and dump them off at where it's a safe zone 
How is that effort going? I guess a lot of people, um, there, there aren't a lot of people there to see what's happening, but I gather the, the firefighting effort is, is intense and it continues. Yeah, it's uh, quite interesting today. A lot of military choppers are flying personnel to the front line further down. Uh, there's a very lot of activity today for us to see. And, you know, it's hard to kind of watch the activity when you're working alongside other people trying to get things done. The amount of effort here between the contractors and everybody, like when people come back to this town, they're going to be shocked to see the amount of work that in such a short period of time that normally probably would have taken years to do. Uh, the infrastructure and the, everybody's working together has been amazing. I've learned a lot of, like a lot of these people I know through business wise, but seeing also on the street, uh, but never really had much interaction with. Uh, have gotten to know each other a lot better, and it's been really interesting to have sit down and have these discussions with people. Right. Uh, in terms, I mean, a lot of people are wondering what their homes may be like. Uh, I, I guess everything is is protected. Everything is shut down. Everything's okay. Yes, yeah, so everything is protected right now. Uh, there's been three front lines built. Uh, so if it gets past one, we have the opportunity to kill it again in another line. Very strong precautions have been brought around town. Lots of water sprinklers, like even behind my place, we're in a green zone here behind us near the airport here, which is in a danger zone. Uh, they've stripped that back behind our property. Sprinklers right from one end of the street down to the other. It's uh, quite a maze of water lines and sprinklers and pumps all over the city. Wow. I, I guess you, you. I mean, it's hard to. We were talking to the to, to a minister today, uh, Shane Thompson, and, and I guess no one, even on the ground, it's just impossible to say if and you know when people will be able, when it'll be safe enough for people people to come back. It's true. That's what we hear a lot um, in our group that we're in with the volunteer section. You know, there's limited resources that we're hearing about. We these guys have put things together. Equipment came so fast from every company. Divec was kind enough to send down a, a team of operators to do a 24-hour shift to do a big push to finish one of the zones. It the the bonding and the cooperation between individuals to get something done without waiting for anybody else to plan. Like they sat down, Condor said, "You take this and you take that," and they all planned it out and they just executed it. And it was just, and then having these firefighters up here has been amazing. I've met a lot of groups of firefighters from different all over the place, Calgary, Edmonton. Uh, there's a group here from South Africa. And these guys are amazing. You know, the gear that's here, they're ready to protect this town. Uh, they have a plan of action. I'm, I'm confident in them. Um, I'm really praying that the fire doesn't hit our town. Yeah, but you know everybody knows with anything it's like wind, fire, and water. You can't trust it. You don't know what it's going to do, and it is dangerous. Yeah, what's your plan? I mean, do you have a, you, you must have a plan to get out if need be. Uh, we have two options uh, we've chosen for ourselves. My wife, she's got her pickup truck with uh, the mementos, like important paperwork, things like that. Like furniture and clothing, that material, those can be ever always be replaced. It's not easy to do. But there's, there's things that can't be. Um, I am prepped. Uh, we have a cabin on an island. My boat's ready. We It's all prepped there. If we have to, we will go there. If we can get out with a vehicle, we'll leave. Um, we have the different contingency plans for ourselves. But um, 
in the last meeting that we all had, they did uh, say that, you know, they said what when you hear the code on the radio, to drop whatever you're doing and immediately get to the multiplex for multiplex and then uh, there'll be immediate extraction. Right. And, and yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Scott, uh, keep up, keep it up. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me tonight. And I'm sure, uh, you know, obviously a lot of people uh, aren't home tonight and they look forward to being back in Yellowknife where you are this evening. Smoky Yellowknife, as you, as you mentioned. Yeah, very smoky. And we're looking forward to have people come back to it. It is creepy driving through town. But having nobody here at the same time, we've been able to move uh, a lot of material and go a lot quicker with, with no uh, interruptions in traffic and other personnel being around that was unnecessary. But right. people need to be reassured that they are fighting hard to save everybody's homes and places. So they have a place to come back. Like I've been seeing on Facebook, like the frustrations and, the, you know, what do we do next? What's going on? And it is hard. To, you know, I feel bad for these higher-ups and these team leads that have been, you know, trying to get proper answers to people, and it's, it is a difficult decision to make. We had, like, one day it was blue sky, and it was like, oh, my God, beautiful. We could breathe right, and everything felt great. And like I said, <clears throat> yesterday I was on my way to dump a load of brush in the area, and we saw the smoke rolling in, and it's been like this ever since, and it got thicker this afternoon. Right. A reminder of just how powerful that fire is. Scott, again, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. No problem. Have a good night. Kleenex was made for this. Strong. With a uniquely soft touch. Made for Canadians. Yeah. Well, maybe not anymore. We have a tissue issue in this country. You won't be able to find Kleenex tissues here on our store shelves pretty soon. The maker of the brand saying on Friday that it has decided to pull its tissues from the Canadian market. Uh, Kimberly Clark, the parent company, cited, quote, unique complexities in Canada. Part of those complexities could be profit. Uh, consumers cutting back on big name brands, especially for non-essentials such as tissue as inflation bites. Toronto Metropolitan University marketing professor Joanne McNeish had this to say. It's a product that we need, but it's not a product that we feel there's a lot of value in, in terms of us wanting to pay a higher price. Right. Uh, Todd Fisher of Kimberly Clark said, quote, the decision was incredibly difficult for us to make, and we appreciate consumers allowing us into their homes over the decades and to our retail partners for their support. Uh, And they thanked customers. There's actually a note on their website thanking Canadian customers, but uh, it turns out they're going to bail. Uh, They're going to blow off Canada, so to speak. And it's just the latest big brand to leave our uh, country. Nestle Canada, of course, uh, wound down sales of its frozen food products, including Delicio, Stouffer's, Lean Cuisine, and so on. And uh, Bugles, which I always could do. I get the name right of that. Uh, Bugles, uh, that uh, iconic. I, my grandmother used to give them to me. I love those things. The iconic cone-shaped corn snack uh, said in November 2022 uh, that they were going to, uh, that their product was no longer available in this country. There's been others, Skippy Peanut Butter, Little Debbie Dessert Cakes, and so forth. Uh, so what is going on, first with Kleenex and with the rest of them? Joining me now is Bruce Winder. He's a retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19. Uh, welcome back, Bruce. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ben. So I think with it, uh, now because I've read a whole bunch about it today, it didn't catch a ton of people in the industry off guard, but I think it caught a lot of Canadians off guard this morning. Yeah, it really has. I mean, I've been doing interviews all day on this Kleenex issue across the media, 
And it really sort of sent a bit of a shockwave through, uh, through Canada, just because it's one of the strongest brands out there in terms of using a brand name to, to really describe a category, which is facial tissue. Right. I suppose even though a lot of us don't actually buy Kleenex, uh, we all buy We all think we're buying. We all think of Kleenex when we buy tissues, right? So uh, they have yeah, that. What do you exactly think? It. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty that's a pretty compelling reason to stay on store shelves, is it not? Well, it, it all depends. Canada has a lot of nuances that can be troublesome for consumer packaged goods makers. Uh, everything from having a very concentrated retail group. So in Canada, we only have, as you know, a few grocers, right? Three big grocers. And in the U.S., they have a lot more, right? We also have a very sort of dispersed population in Canada, right? Our logistics are really hard. It's hard to move product around, especially this kind of product, which is, you know, low ticket price point and higher cube. Um, You know, and then you have other issues, too, where you have a big, strong private label program from others, And, you know, I also heard that Scotty's was a big brand as well that was sort of elbowing out uh, Kleenex on store shelves. So there could be a myriad of reasons as to why they're leaving Canada, but you know it has to do with dollars and cents. Yeah, I I gather they they pulled Huggies out of Europe uh, a while back. I mean, this is this is clearly something that the companies looked at and and they're just trying. I suppose this is this is bottom line driven, right? Are we making enough money to justify being there? And if not, well, you know, it may seem strange to people coming to Canada not to find Kleenex on the shelves, the brand at least. But the company probably feels like it doesn't. uh, It's just not worth worth the effort. Yeah, that's exactly it, Ben. It's it's really a financial decision when someone in the company takes a look at how much they're selling, their cost to serve, you know, their net profit. They use something called activity-based costing, which breaks down everything they do according to this product group. And you know what? Sometimes the numbers come up negative, and they come up negative for a while. And it's just, it just doesn't make any sense for the company to carry it. To your point earlier, too, you know, we're, we're sort of hovering into a recession right now, and people are looking to cut back on anything they can. And no offense to Kleenex, but, you know, you can cut back pretty easily with a private label, uh, product versus paying a premium for Kleenex, you could save a little bit of money there. Right. And, and you talked about KP tissue, which is Kruger, I guess, and uh, they're pretty dominant. I mean, Scotty tissues are pretty, uh, are pretty dominant in this, in this country as well. They, they do well. Um, and I gather that, uh, that um, Kleenex only had the one factory in Huntsville. So there was, there was some logistical issues at play here too. I mean, we think of, I think because the brand name is so iconic, we think of it as being this huge, huge industry and this this big company everywhere it goes and you mentioned it earlier when it comes to moving kleenex around which is a pretty bulky product that you sell for pretty low cost um that that just wasn't the case with kleenex in this country at least not with kimberly Kimberly clark at least yeah i mean you know kleenex is one of those things it's like paper towels it's an absolute nightmare from a logistics perspective you're not getting a lot of money for the product but it takes up a fair amount of cube and if you only have one factory in huntsville you know, I don't know if they had other factories uh, out west, but, geez, you know, to ship that more than a few hundred kilometers, you start to blow your margins. Your costs are worth more than the product itself. So the math just doesn't work when you have to truck, you know, products like this around the country. Yeah, I, I gather they're keeping some of their other brands in that people may recognize, Cottonelle, Huggies, and so forth. Uh, those are staying. So they're sort of just consolidating. They're, they're keeping what they think makes money and getting rid of what they think doesn't. Yeah, and that's what CPG, you know, consumer packaged goods companies, they do this all the time, right? They're looking at every single product by country, by retailer, 
And at some point, you know, they, and, they, and they assign all the acti- all the costs of each activity. And at some point, sometimes they have to retire some products. They just say, you know what? Hey, we're making enough margin on these other products that we can keep them going. But you know what? The time has come that the math just doesn't work on Kleenex anymore, and we're going to retire it for Canada. It's, it's pretty common, actually. Right. I guess, I guess it's just, I, I, it, uh, this may sound a bit strange, but it's always, it feels like, you know, countries, when you have those iconic brands on your shelves, it sort of makes you feel like, you you, you know, you're part of something. And when they start pulling yeah. off those brands, you sort of think, wait a second, wait, what do you mean you can't buy Kleenex in Canada? And you think it's a country full of colds. We have long winters. Uh, we use, no doubt, probably use more tissue than a lot of people I would suspect. And here we are, we don't have yeah. the brand that you associate with the product. We don't have it in this country anymore. Yeah, and it's a bit of a reminder for us in Canada. Like we feel big, you know, we hit 40 million people this year, which is nice. But when you really look at it on a worldwide scale, we're not a very big country. Um, you know, our neighbors in the south are pushing well over 330 million people. And their population is a lot more dense than ours, right, especially on the eastern side. And uh, we kind of remind ourselves, we need a bit of a reminder sometimes that we're just not that big. And, you know, sometimes it just doesn't make economic sense to serve the country. And that's a decision that companies are free to make, right? You know, even though most people feel a bit of an affinity toward Kleenex, you know, it's really a dollars and cents decision. And and that's probably why they were so delicate about sort of, you know, publishing that goodbye note, because they know that it has a great place in consumers' hearts in Canada. Interesting. Does it hurt? A, I mean, we've always felt it, felt it would help a brand to, to be – associated with the actual products. So you think of things like Tupperware or Kleenex, mm-hmm. where you literally use the brand name to describe the product. And yet sometimes it feels like it does them a bit of a disservice because any plastic container with a lid on it, we call it Tupperware, even though they've been, they've been undercut by a million different competitors. And the same goes for Kleenex. We call it Kleenex, even though I can't remember the last time I bought Kleenex, quote unquote. Exactly. It's like, it's like they're unique selling proposition for branding has been diluted right it's so common that we use it for everything so it's sort of lost some of that sheen right you know to your point we said just grab me a kleenex well i'm going to go and do that it's like in the 80s in the 70s you know there was kodiaks right we for work boots we'd say i'm gonna put my kodiaks on so you know what it happens a lot you know sometimes you might say iphone give me my iphone but it might not be from apple right so it's one of the dangers that some brands have when they get so big and people, remember, the, the bigger you are, uh, the harder you fall. And a lot of brands try to jump in and get some of the action. So it's, it's, it's pretty common to see a brand sort of have a bit of an, uh, an end to its life, if you will. Yeah. And we saw, we talked about Tupperware earlier this year who are going through all kinds of problems, right? Considering they basically created yeah. the product and, you know, and here they yeah. are. They've been undercut by everybody. You can buy anything. You, you can call it all Tupperware at the dollar store, right? Exactly. And, that, and that's sort of the reality. When you take a close look at these categories, you see that there's a number of brands. And let's not forget, during the pandemic, a lot of retailers switched heavily to private label their own store brands, right? And that's mm-hmm. probably nudged some of the Kleenex off the shelf as well. Yeah. It's interesting to think of Kleenex as being a bit of a premium brand, but it is, right? It is a little more expensive than the other stuff. And uh, you buy it probably because you recognize that logo. You do, and 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 in fair in fairness to them, you know, you can feel a bit of a difference when you when you blow your nose with Kleenex versus <laughs> yeah. you know a private label item. But is it really worth it? You know, it's not like it's a Cadillac and you're going to show it off driving down the street. So this this is a typical area where people can cut some costs in, in a potential yeah, recession. It reminds me of, reminds me of that 80s commercial, Bruce. I'm sure you remember. We're rationing tissues around here from now on. When the dad splits the tissue in half, and you think. <laughs> 
would oh, do yeah, that. Exactly. Uh, Bruce, this isn't the first big uh, big brand to kind of leave us. Um, I remember when Skippy Peanut Butter decided to bail. Uh, Bugle Snack Chips, I always like those. Those are gone. I gather Delicioso Frozen Pizza, Stouffer's, Lean Cuisine, they're going. So what's happening? It feels mm-hmm. like there's an exodus of these sort of well-known, identifiable brands from our shelves. Yeah, and and there are, like we like we've been talking about. There's a few things that makes Canada a bit unique and a bit tougher to do business. Some of the things we hadn't talked about before the break were things like you know Canada has a a fairly high tax environment and and higher labor rates. We also have higher regulation here than the U.S. And the biggest thing is volume, right? Our population is uh, you know 40 million versus 330 million. And, uh, you know, these, these big machines, they take a lot, they need a lot of volume to make money, right? You can't have small production runs and still make money with these type of products. And, and like I said, you know, I, I, I think it has something to do with the fact that the grocery uh, sector is so concentrated, right? You've got Empire, Metro, and Sobeys, sorry, Empire, Metro, and Loblaw, you know, right. representing 50 to 60%. You throw Walmart and Costco in there, and there's like 70 or 80%. And uh, it's harder for these brands to sort of negotiate favorable cost increases. Yeah, I would imagine. I always thought, though, I mean, we're only, most of us live within a quick drive from the U.S. border. I used to think they just, oh, you know, say in Detroit, we'll make a bunch of these deliciosos, just, you know, ship them across the border. We'll sell them in Toronto. I guess that's not the way this works at all. No, it's quite different. I mean, it really depends on the category. But you know what? You have to have... Um, you, you, first of all, you have to have different packaging for Canada, right? You have to have bilingual right, of course. packaging. You have different ingredient requirements in terms of what's on the package in Canada. And uh, you may even have different menu items, right? Different type of products that sell in Canada versus the U.S. Uh, and you can't really ship them too far. You might be able to run them across the border in some cases. But, you know, you can only ship these things so far before you start to lose money uh, per, per piece. So um, it, it works sometimes, and sometimes it just doesn't, the math just doesn't work. Right. Because there was a time I remember back to going, you'd go to the grocery store in the U.S. back in the 80s, in the early 80s especially, and, and into the mid-80s, and you'd just be amazed by the brands, all these brands you saw on TV on those on Saturday morning cartoons, and you'd think, oh, wow, this is like, you know, this is, this is, this is it. This is the nirvana of groceries. And then slowly but surely yeah. over the years, Canada seems to have caught up, and we had a lot of the same brands here. And now slowly but surely, it feels like we're going to be going back to the States and going, you know, sort of bringing huge bundles of buggles back across the border with us. It's strange. Yeah, and it's one of the things, too, that brands really started to do during the pandemic is something called SKU uh, consolidation and SKU rationalization. SKU means stock-keeping unit. It's sort mm-hmm. of an item you see on the grocery store. A lot of companies sort of looked at that and said, do we really need to carry all these products? Are we making money on all these products? And they got pretty you know, ruthless about saying, hey, if we're not making money on this product and it can't stand alone, we're going to drop it. You know, And that's, that's something that's been going on for a while, but I find that it really accelerated during the pandemic as there were supply issues. Right. So it's sort of a reckoning within the industry and then really looking at the bottom line and saying, okay, we're not going to worry too much about upsetting customers here because they'll get over it. Uh, But we need to make sure that the products we're selling make sense to be selling for our bottom line, not for customer satisfaction necessarily. That's true. And there's so many mergers and acquisitions too in the food industry and another of other industries. And sometimes, not, not in this case, but in sometimes... A brand gets lost. You know, sometimes maybe brands that aren't as famous as Kleenex, they get lost in the shuffle and they just don't get the attention anymore. They don't get the marketing spend, right? And then they kind of die off. That happens too. You know, I think of the toy industry, 
Viewmaster business. I don't know if you remember Viewmaster. I do. Yeah, I had a Viewmaster. I love that yeah, thing. So that, I, was a, right? that was a and long that, time ago. That was ago. its own yeah. company. Yeah. yeah, that was its own company. And it was bought, I think, by Tyco, I don't know, about, you know, a few decades ago. But slowly but surely, the business just went down and down and down. And I'm not even sure if they carry it anymore. But, you know, a brand can kind of get lost in the shuffle with all these mergers and acquisitions of big companies, too. Well, Bruce, uh, I guess we'll bid farewell to Kleenex. I'm not sure how much of each of us will notice, but I get the sense when someone says, someone's going to come visit from elsewhere and head into one of our pharmacies and say, hey, I'm, I'm just going to go buy some Kleenex. And you're like, wait, you might want to buy something else <laughs> instead. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Well, Bruce, as always, thanks so much for, uh, for your time on this tonight. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too, Ben. Take care. Bye-bye now. Speaking of brand names, one that you may have heard a whole lot about a whole lot about recently is Ozempic, right? I mean, it's been everywhere, social media, the news. It was developed to treat type 2 diabetes. It's also been hailed as a wonder weight loss drug. Celebrities from Elon Musk to Rosie O'Donnell, Charles Barkley, the basketball player, to Amy Schumer have all spoken about using it. And uh, its popularity also has led to some concerns around who's selling it and who's buying it. In BC, for example, the sale of the drug through BC pharmacies online is restricted to Canadian citizens and permanent residents because it was found there were some concerns over a lack of supply because it was being sold online to people not from here because demand is so high. Uh, and last week, Health Canada actually uh, warned of temporary supply disruptions through early October uh, with the Ozempic one milligram injection pen due to increased demand and supply constraints. It turns out Canada is one of many countries experiencing a similar kind of shortage. Um, we wanted to find out more about the drug itself. I mean, it, it, the Ozempic is a brand name. We wanted to find out more about the drug itself, why why it's so popular, what impact that's having, and what should we make of it as a weight loss drug? So we thought we'd call on Dr. Ali Zentner, an internal medicine, diabetes, and obesity specialist with Revolution Medical Clinic in Vancouver. Dr. Zentner, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is, I mean, there's so much talk going on. I mean, you know, when my dad called me to talk about Ozempic at some point, so you know that it's that it's hit sort of yes. that, that level of attention. Uh, but just to start at the beginning, and you have a great analogy for how this drug works. Ozempic's just a brand name. This is a, a family of drugs that work in a certain way, and it's and it and it seems to be a real, as you mentioned, a real game changer, especially for control for diabetes treatment. Absolutely. I mean, this is a class of drugs. First of all, so semaglutide, which is the generic name for Ozempic. Um, semaglutide is a, a medication that falls into a class of drugs called GLP-1 analogs and in a broader scope, a class of drugs called incretins that have actually been on the market for over a decade. And in Canada, uh, semaglutide specifically has been approved for type 2 diabetes for the last almost five years and for the last almost two years for obesity. Um, so it's something to keep in mind when we talk about off-label uses, et cetera, that this class of medications definitely has Health Canada's approval. It's a copy of a gut hormone. So when we eat, food hits our small intestine about 20 minutes after a meal, and a flood of hormones are released in the system to tell the brain that a meals have arrived. Uh, the analogy I use for Canadians is we all played hockey in the streets of this great nation. You know, there was always a kid whose responsibility it was to yell car, to let everybody know that a car was coming and we would move the game out of the street and then there was an all clear. And so think of incretins 
as sort of one of the kids who yells car. Um, so it lets the body know that there's a meal on board. So if you think about it, if the brain thinks it's starving, which we know that, for example, obesity is an inappropriate starvation response in the brain, you're sending it sort of almost like a message, a, a hormonal trick, if you will, that tells it you can't possibly be starving because we've got a hormone that we only get when food is around. And so this becomes important because, as you may know, there's other agents that are coming to Canada in particular. For example, there's another in cretin-based therapy or GLP-1 analog called tercepatide. And tercepatide is interesting because it's a dual agent. So it's GLP, but it's also GIP. So it's what we call a twin cretin. It's two, so to speak, for the price of one. To quote uh, Dr. Goldman, in other words, it, it's yelling to the brain, food, right? It's saying to the brain, right, food. exactly. Yeah. Food, you're and, and think about it, for a person with diabetes, when you eat, you need insulin production to allow for glucose to enter into a cell. So it sort of stimulates the insulin train, if you will, and it shuts off what's called glucose mobilization at the level of the liver. So how it regulates body sugars, if you will, or blood sugars rather, in a patient with diabetes is that you're not getting this mobilization of glucose from the liver, and you are getting improved sensitivity of insulin. So that's it's that idea. If you, if you think of it like how the hormone works in terms of, as my medical school professors would be so proud, if we go back to first principles, right. it sort of explains every disease process. And, and you've mentioned as well that, it, and it's been around for a while. We, I know we're paying a lot of attention to it these days, yeah. specifically yeah. when it comes to weight loss. But for type 2 diabetes, it's been a real, real change because it's allowed a, a far more robust and and sort of and less frequent way of, of coping with or, or at least medicating for it. Right. If you think about where diabetes was like, I mean, when I started my practice, when I finished residency, that would have been 23 years ago. You know, we had insulin, we had a couple of pills, um, but the average person was taking, you know, perhaps maybe multi-dose insulin, a couple of shots a day, or they were taking a handful of pills every day. This is Again, this class of medications and the newer ones are once weekly um, and they offer the most potent diabetes uh, treatments. You know, you're looking at sort of a three month blood sugar average, which is one of the indicators we use or what, what people with diabetes will understand is called the hemoglobin A1C. Uh, it's anywhere between 1.5 and 2% reduction in A1C, which was the effect of two agents previously. So it's sort right. of the potency of, let's say, two medications for blood glucose control with the frequency, let's say, of once weekly. Um, but I would actually correct you, Ben, and say that I think where this class of medications has made the bigger impact is in the obesity community and in right. the treatment of obesity because offshooting from diabetes, but most patients with diabetes would gain weight with their blood sugar control. So you now have an agent that offers the opposite. We know that obesity very much is a legitimate disease. And, and I should preface that by saying there's some problems with that statement. You know, a disease doesn't mean a person is sick, mm -hmm. but that their body's not performing a physiological function and it can affect how they move through the world. And what, what this drug has done in its development and in its treatment is shine a light on all of our cultural misconceptions around weight regulation and, and first made us understand that this, you know, how one person gains weight and another one doesn't in the same setting is due to huge genetics and this biological dysregulation 
of what we call a starvation response. And so we better understand that it's not a math equation, that people aren't just eating too much and not exercising enough, that that's not what's causing this, that it's a lot more complicated than that. And then it's also offered this significant avenue for treatment. But the reality is, is that when you understand treatments, it helps us sort of better shine a light on the biology of why something goes wrong, if you will, and why some people have a dysregulation of biology and others don't. And so I think it's really done that. And then also, of course, it's offered this really interesting cultural discussion that has happened around who should get the drug and who's most appropriate and all of these fascinating, you know, cultural experiences that come with the discussion around weight. Uh, Dr. Zedner, I know you've been asked about this multiple times and you've been watching the sort of the, the social and social media phenomenon around this. Uh, we're reading now again about shortages because there, I guess there's so much demand for it. Uh, how do you meet, uh, how should we be reacting to this? It sort of has that miracle cure feel about it. And of course, there is no such thing really. But you mentioned that this is a really, a, this this is a game changer, this one. Yeah, and I think let's understand why shortages happen, particularly with this medication. I think there's, first of all, as a physician, I'm not, I have no stocks in these agents. So the, the supply of this drug is not my responsibility. I'll be very frank. My job is to treat patients. And yes, part of that is worrying about how they're going to get their medications and accessibility to medications. And, and part of the challenge when we talk about, yeah, supply here is that Part of the issue is the fact that, yes, I think there was perhaps a lack of preparation, if you will, for how significant the response to this medication was going to be. But also it has to do with the actual delivery, pen delivery system and the production. And it's more, it's not the drug so much, it's the delivery system and the plastics. My understanding is that Part of it has to do with more of the supply as well, so to speak. And then, of course, the usual, you know, supply chain shortages, et cetera. I, I think to answer your point to patients who, for example, might be listening for taking this medication or what have you, how drugs get into a patient's hands is a number of events that have to happen. So pharmacists order from sort of distributors, et cetera. So if a, I always tell my patients, if your pharmacy says they don't have it, you go to another pharmacy, you know, getting one pen at a time. The shortage, my understanding, Health Canada has let us know, is short-lived. So it's uh, from the last week, like from around now, so end of August to beginning to mid-October. So it's about a six-week uh, shortage. So we're not talking, oh my God, no one's going to get it. You know, it's also highlighted, I get a lot of discussions around, quote, who should be taking this medication? And should I really be prescribing this to people who, quote, don't need it, end quote. And I think that gets us into this odd town square around weight bias. And why is it that if we had a drug that treated both MS and rheumatoid arthritis, I don't know that we'd be having so many interviews. But we have a drug that treats people with diabetes, but it also treats people with obesity. And we are still in a culture that believes that diabetes is a legitimate disease and obesity is just, you know, a bunch of weak people who can't control themselves. And they should definitely just learn better. And you know, the science has taught us that we're wrong. And, you know, medicine is an interesting place. It has its positives and its negatives. And one of the things I love most about it is 
it does admit when it screwed up and it does try to make it better. And medicine was wrong in how it portrayed weight regulation. And we were wrong in depression. I mean, 40 years ago, a person came to their physician and said, you know, I'm really, you know, struggling with my mood. And Mm -hmm. the physician said, well, you know, just maybe go to therapy. You're not, maybe you're just not happy enough. And now we understand this is a legitimate, you know, inflammatory brain disease. It's a biological dysregulation of neurohormones, et cetera. And there's a legitimate treatment. We're even seeing these shifts, for example, in substance misuse disorder. And so I am hopeful that we're now going to realize that obesity is a legitimate disease, meaning a biological dysregulation with 5,000 genes and 37 different hormones where a brain thinks it's starving and it hunts and it stores. And we even have data to show sort of long-term effects of that system and that we now are getting legitimate treatments where people don't have to just eat less and move more. They actually don't have to try harder, but we now have them try smarter. Can you imagine if there was a sign outside of BC cancer that said no pain, no gain? Well, no, no. I mean, you make a you make a very valid point. I, I guess one of the things that's happened too, and this is what happens around things that seem to be new, even though you point out that this class of drugs is isn't that new, is that all of a sudden you, you get the idea that people are going to go out and try and find it themselves, right? There's this idea of scarcity right. because people with money are going to find this. It becomes this miracle thing, and people run out and buy it and deprive other people of it. And you're saying, I mean, clearly, I don't think people should be buying this off internet pharmacies for yeah. them and treating themselves. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So I. I- I don't believe anybody should practice medicine without a license in anywhere. But I do think that these discussions should be had between a patient and their physician about, you know, a disease is a body dysregulation that affects how a person moves through the world. These are discussions that patients should have between their physician where they're making informed decisions about long-term implications, about long-term, you know, this is a medication, for example, that's long-term, right? Because the body doesn't learn from drugs. It's a compensation for what our bodies aren't doing. So I think we need to be very mindful of the fact that that there's science behind this. And yeah, you know what? I love the discussions. I even love the arguments because I think it signals that the times are changing and that people's minds are somewhat more open and you have a population of people i mean if a third of this country has obesity by quote bmi which is a whole other garbage experience because bmi is not ever meant to be a clinical tool but if a third of this country is sort of wrestling with this then everybody knows somebody who's been really trying way too hard and not having much help and so now there's options for people. That's a world I want to be a part of. And that's conversations that I welcome having. And and ones that I, I welcome patients to come and talk to their doctors about this. But I think it's when we we shush people and we shame them that they have no other choice but to go to an internet pharmacy. Right. Dr. Zender, I will leave it there. Thank you so much. You made some, I mean, some excellent points there. I think that really the listeners should, should stop and think about all that you've talked about. Much appreciated. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me.
But let's talk tourism now. When I was working as a foreign correspondent for a global NCTV in uh, Beijing, one of the big, big Canadian stories that we covered over that time uh, was something called preferred destination status, or at least, uh, yeah, it was, it was approved destination status is actually the right word for it. And uh, it had been sort of negotiated uh, earlier in the decade kind of fallen apart when the Harper government came in and sort of talked about not putting uh, rights before the, not putting the almighty dollar before rights. China's always used this list, by the way, as a bit of a political, uh, bit of a political bat uh, against people it doesn't like much. Because what it allows, uh, what, what happens with it is once China gives a country approved destination status, tour groups are then allowed to go to that country and it's promoted better within China. So it becomes an easier place for Chinese tour groups to go to. And and uh, that's a big deal because uh, Chinese tourists still often travel in large groups. It's good for the country on the other end because they get lots of tourism. Uh, they tend to spend longer time uh, in each country. They spend more money while they're there. Uh, so it was a big deal. And I remember when Stephen Harper struck a deal with Beijing back in 2009. We covered this. It was big. And Canada had at long last been added to this list of approved destination countries. Um the tours began. It was a big deal. At the time, I think they estimated 50,000 more tourists a year, $100 million annually that it would be worth. And by 2019, China was indeed one of Canada's biggest sources of tourist arrivals from that region and uh, the second long-haul market. I mean, obviously, people from closer like the U.S., a lot more of them, but the second long-haul market to Canada after the U.K. Now, that all kind of – that all ground to a halt with the pandemic Obviously, it had already started to dip a bit as relations between China and Canada grew increasingly strained over the Meng Wanzhou affair and the detention, of course, of the two Michaels and the back and forth diplomatically over that. Well, China is out of lockdown now, obviously. Tourists are looking to travel again. Relations between Canada and China are still very chilly, obviously. And guess what? Canada is no longer, or at least is not on this updated list of approved international travel destinations that China has uh, put out. We went from approved uh, to disapproved, according to Beijing. They cited diplomatic strain, for instance, um, in, in sort of couched it in different kinds of terms. Uh, that despite the fact that it's been granted, Beijing has granted it to 138 other countries who already have it, including countries such as the U.S., who are no end of uh, sort of diplomatic spats with China, Germany, and France. So what kind of impact could this have? Uh, clearly, Canada's tourism industry itself is trying to emerge from a post from the pandemic, uh, you know, dark times during the pandemic. And we thought we'd ask Beth Potter, who's president and CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of Canada. Beth, thank you so much. Great to be back with you, Ben. Tell me a bit about the summer. It feels like, I mean, I was uh, back east uh, in Montreal and Ottawa and Quebec City, and it was packed. There were tourists absolutely everywhere. What's the summer of 2023 been like so far? You know, it's been a pretty good summer. We're really happy to say that uh, Canadians have been out traveling um, and and really exploring their own country. And that is fantastic. Uh, domestic travel is, is pretty much back to where it was pre-pandemic. International travel is still a little bit behind where we have been in the past. Um, and we don't think it's going to be back to pre-pandemic levels until probably 2025. What's going on with that? Because I did notice, I mean, there were a lot of French tourists in Quebec City. Obviously, it's a place that attracts uh, a lot of French tourists, although it's hard to tell because obviously there are a lot of uh, French nationals living in Quebec right now. So who knows if they were just there on a quick vacation. But what, what, what are some of the barriers right now to international tourism returning? You know, a lot of it comes down to um, if folks 
wanting to stay a little bit closer to home. There are still, as we know, uh, some folks who are, you know, still wearing masks and still, you know, a little bit hesitant about going too far afield. Um, and that's, that's perfectly normal. And like Canadians, I think that a lot of people around the globe kind of woke up to the treasures within their own country. And so they're taking advantage of uh, exploring their own backyards before going a little further afield. Right. How is it playing out regionally? Is it, uh, are we seeing sort of, is it uniform in terms of, I mean, I know in terms of people sort of exploring their own backyards, it's probably pretty uniform, but in terms of international travel, has it been, have we seen some areas surge back and others not, or is it all pretty much the same right across the country? No, there are some differences, certainly. Europe is actually doing quite well. Um, the United States is still behind uh, where they would normally be quite significantly. And that that really comes down to, we've seen this before, you know, when tragedy strikes, when crisis strikes, Americans like to cocoon and they've got a, a big country that they can explore themselves. So they do stay tend to stay home a little bit longer than, than other folks around the world. And the other area in the world that's a little bit softer on coming back um, are the Asian countries. And certainly uh, we're not seeing the same kind of numbers coming out of you know, Korea and Japan as an example. Tell me a bit about this decision by China then, because I know, I mean, the numbers have changed a bit and this this predates the pandemic. Uh, but but China, Chinese tourism, Chinese group tourism certainly played a pretty significant role in sort of for several years in the last decade, ever since they kind of uh, allowed for group travel back in the early 2010s. Uh, what kind of impact has that had? And, and this decision to leave us off this preferred list, what will happen there? Well, really what it means is that uh, Canadian tourism businesses uh, don't have access to the same markets that they did pre-pandemic. Uh, and so they're going to have to fill the gap with uh, folks from other countries. You know, with the with not being on the list, um, you know, it, it is going to have a significant uh, economic impact on our industry. Uh, in the, you know, in the past, they accounted for about two billion dollars in visitor spending in our country, and that's you know, that's not chump change. That's that's quite significant. Tell me a bit about for for listeners who might not understand sort of the, the the logistics around group travel versus individual travel. What is the meaning of of these group permits? Because I gather um, it is a big deal when it comes to Chinese tourism that these groups uh, being able to come. The group permission is pretty important. Certainly more important than it would be for other countries. Certainly, um, group travel is still a preferred method of travel coming out of of China, and so um, we're talking about you know, a group of 50 or more people coming at one time. And as you can expect, you know, if you're a tour operator, um, getting a group coming in instead of, and knowing that they're coming, um, they're, they're, they're visitors that you can depend on. That is a healthy part of many tourism operators' business plans is, is really uh, making sure that they do sell to that group market. So it, it, it's an impediment not being on the list right now. Um, and we're hoping that we'll see Canada get back on the list uh, sometime in the near future. But that's going to be in somebody else's ballpark to figure that out. Yeah, I was going to talk to you about that ballpark because clearly a lot of the the implications here is that this is, um, I mean, and this has been true in the past as well and not just for Canada, but this is often used as, as sort of a political tool by by the Chinese government uh, in terms of who they prefer and who they don't. Um, and I, I guess there's it's a sensitive one uh, for and, and it's someone else's ballpark, clearly. 
It really is. Um, but, you know, our government can be doing some other things to support tourism businesses here at home and, and on the domestic front. Um, you know, through the pandemic years, a lot of tourism businesses across the country took on a lot of debt. And SEBA loans were part of that debt. And the de- deadline for paying back the SEBA loans is fast approaching. It's uh, at the end of December of this year. Because the tourism industry is not back at 100%. You know, operators are are quite concerned about the debt load that they're carrying and um, what it's going to mean if they don't pay back by uh, December 31st. You know, uh, interest rate is going to start to accrue. So our government right now are being asked by us and by the industry to extend that SEBA repayment deadline. And that will just give businesses a little bit more breathing space. And when we look at the impact of of, of the Chinese decision here, um, clearly there are areas that that Chinese tourists tend to go to, groups particularly. So I imagine in that case, and we were talking a bit about about the unevenness of of this, uh, there are areas that will be more impacted by this decision by Beijing than others. Well, certainly um, some of our iconic destinations and attractions across the country uh, will be more impacted than others, you know, the Niagara Falls and, and Banff Park and, you know, Banff Lake Louise, that area. But a lot of Chinese visitors or visitors from China actually do come and visit with friends and family and right. friends and family are located everywhere. And so it really will have an impact on businesses from coast to coast to coast. Uh, you talked a bit about it earlier. This this will be one of many things that are impacting the tourism industry. And you mentioned the need for Canada to do more to uh, to support tourism businesses, uh, especially around loans that were given out during the pandemic. But what are some of the other things that, I mean, here we are, 2023, the pandemic is sort of in the rear view mirror, we think. Um, but what are some of the other areas now that are starting, the dust is starting to settle on the tourism industry, I suppose. Now we have a clearer picture of what it's going to look like going forward. And where can where can help come from? Well, certainly, um, you know, we've been looking at a, a number of different issues that are, that are keeping our tourism operators awake at night. Um, one of them is the labor front. And, right. um, you know, I just want to, to talk about that a little bit. You know, why? Why are we having such a challenge in, in hiring and keeping staff within our industry? And we have a bit of a reputation. Um, during the pandemic, our businesses were closed again and again and again by the various restrictions that were implemented. And so a lot of people in our industry from frontline to senior executive offices said, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going to work, take my skills and I'm going to work for an industry that is a little bit more stable. So we are battling back on that front. And um, certainly we are pleased with some of the recent changes that have been announced through, you know, Immigration, uh, Refugee and Citizenship Canada around changes to things like the temporary foreign worker program, um, but we're going to have to work hard on on things like reminding the world that uh, Canada is a great place to travel. Lots of great outdoor spaces. We are a safe place, and we're a very welcoming community. So that is um, that's going to be top of the priority list for many uh, marketers within our industry over the next few years. We've, you know, clearly it's it's hard not to have any conversation in Canada these days and not talk about the wildfire situation. I mean, because it gets so much coverage around the world, that too must have an impact as well. And of course, we think of all those, you know, having to leave their homes and, 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 and you know, certainly they are front of mind. Uh, but for an industry looking to try to attract people from abroad again, uh, those sorts of headlines probably can't help. 
Absolutely not. And, you know, we've, we certainly have heard from operators who have had cancellations, um, you know, based on news coverage of wildfires in different parts of, of the country. Um, and it, and it, it certainly doesn't help us when, you know, the front page of the New York Times is a picture of, of their city full of smoke from right. wildfires in Canada. But, you know, for the most part, the wildfires are being managed and controlled by the professionals. Um, our industry works very, very closely with local officials whenever there's any kind of situation like this uh, to make sure that we are working hand in hand with them to uh, help the situation, whether that's helping to move people out of zones that are being affected, right down to housing, um, you know, first responders um, in in our accommodations. Really? So, I mean, how does that work? Do you, do you sort of get a phone call? I mean, this is coordinated, obviously, by by many other people, but you're sort of the umbrella group. So how does that work? Do you do, do you just get phone calls from different tourism organizers around the world saying we have X number of this group in this place? Or is it that direct? It's it really is a network within the industry itself that that just pops to life. Um, you know, our industry is one where we put people first. Um, and we always have. And so um, making sure that your guests, if your guests can't come to your um, your resort, as an example, um, that you are uh, working proactively with the tour operator um, and getting those folks um, rerouted somewhere else um, so that they still have a great Canadian experience. Um, and then working with local officials, um, you know, oftentimes local officials will come to directly to tourism operators and say, you know, we need help. Can you help us, you know, with putting up our first responders so they get a break right. uh, while they're while they're uh, trying to battle the flames? So that is certainly um, another way in which, you know, we will always step up. Well, Beth, thank you so much, as always. Thank you. Great to be here. We talked a bit about uh, China and tourism in the last half hour. Canada's not on the approved destination list that Beijing has put out for Chinese tour groups, uh, and that will have an impact uh, presumably on Canada's tourism sector. But let's go back to China now because there's been a lot of um, – articles over the past few weeks or so that have really been taking, showing some concern about the state of China's economy. I mean, China's long been an engine of global growth, right? The economy that other countries have looked up to with a certain envy, double-digit growth, uh, made it through the great global financial crisis with fairly unscathed, although that took a lot of money to make sure that that happened. But in recent months, it's been showing signs of a slowdown, and that has alarmed investors and other countries who depend heavily on China for trade. And the problems seem to be coming from inside China itself. After a rapid growth of activity earlier this year, because lockdowns in China lasted a lot longer than they did here, and that had a real impact, obviously, on the domestic economy, those lockdowns are done. And so there was a bit of a spurt of, uh, of activity in China's economy, but now it's stalling again. Consumer prices are falling. Real est- there's a real estate crisis there that is deepening. Exports are in a bit of a slump. And uh, apparently youth unemployment has gotten so bad that the government actually stopped publishing data about it. So what exactly is going on? David Dollar served as the U.S. Treasury's economic and financial emissary to China in Beijing from 2009 to 2013. He's now a senior fellow with the Brookings Institute in the U.S. and he joins me now. David, thank you for your time tonight. Really great to be on the show, Ben. Look forward to the discussion. 
we've been talking about, I think even when I was there back when you were there, sort of 2009, 2013, people had always predicted the doom, the doom of sort of this strange Chinese economy built on sort of massive infrastructure development and property development. Uh, is this time different, do you think? Are we witnessing something out of the ordinary now? Well, I think a lot of those earlier visions of doom have proved not to be accurate. I mean, I recall in the time period you're talking about, 2009, 2010, 11, China clearly had a lot of problems, uh, but I was among a group of economists who felt that China still had a lot of growth potential, and it particularly depended on how they approached reform. I think more recently, there's a lot of pessimism because they've done some reforms, but a lot of key reforms have stagnated. And meanwhile, they've built up a lot of capital stock. So they're subject to diminishing returns. And there's just a lot of things going against them right now. When that being said, I mean, again, part of what we were witnessing back then continues to happen today. And it's a sort of this cycle of, of local governments making a lot of money or trying to make money off land, um, and then developers building and then people buying. And presumably that's fueled a lot of growth in China over the, over the years, but it feels like that engine is really starting to clog up. Yeah, I mean, you know, any government has a certain amount of potential to borrow and build up public debt. And China, uh, all the way through the 2000s, you know, China was pretty conservative and they really did not build up a lot of government debt. When the global crisis hit, they had a lot of ammunition, I would say, I would call it, you know, and they were able to stimulate a lot of local investment projects, local infrastructure projects in high-speed rail and roads, ports. And a lot of that was actually somewhat lacking in China, you know, if you go back to the early 2000s. So they got a lot of mileage out of that. But you do run into the real constraint on the real side, you know, which is diminishing returns that, you know, the, the last section of railway that you built doesn't have nearly as much impact as the first section, which went from Beijing to Shanghai on the high-speed rail. And then on the financing side, as the government builds up a lot of debt relative to GDP, uh, it becomes more difficult for that to continue. The uh, financial markets uh, are become more cautious. Interest rates tend to go up. So you've got the financial side working against you, and then probably more important, you have the real diminishing returns. Yeah, I remember taking that, uh, the inaugural ride, at least they brought reporters on one of the inaugural rides on that Beijing to Shanghai high-speed rail line. So so why are pe people so pessimistic now? I mean, there's been some a, a few flashpoints of late, uh, a lot of it in the property sector. Uh, but what's going on now that, that leads people to sort of, when I mean, we're seeing those headlines again, is China in the middle of an economic crisis? Well, I think people were, in, and the outside, people outside of China were a little too optimistic in a sense, and extrapolated very high growth rates forward. So you, you you can find some commentary saying, well, if China keeps growing like this, it'll be twice as big as the United States before long. That's true mathematically, but there's no economics behind that. You know, it was always likely that they were going to slow down. So I think part of what's happening is you know, they've got a number of problems hitting them at once, and it's viewed against a very high expectation uh, that they were going to continue to be a miracle economy, and and that was probably unrealistic. And and they do have real problems. You know, they've got stagnating labor force because of the one-child policy in the past. I've mentioned they've overbuilt a lot of capital stock and infrastructure, also housing. I would add, uh, so it's hard to get more oomph out of investment when you've already overbuilt a lot. And then, frankly, this trade war between China and the U.S. That I wouldn't lead with that 
uh, as a negative factor, but it is one additional negative factor in their situation. When you were there, of course, uh, it was under Hu Jintao and, and things felt quite open. I mean, uh, as China was quite open economically under Xi Jinping, uh, things feel a bit different. They certainly feel different in many ways. And on the economic front of late, they feel a little, a little bit different. What do you make of, of Beijing's response to this? Because they were very quick to jump in uh, when the global financial crisis hit back in, in the later part of, of the of the two, 2008, 2009, very quick to jump in with a lot of stimulus. You were just talking about it. Uh, this time around, it's been a little bit less muscular. What do you make? of Beijing's response to this so far and, and what might be behind it? Well, it's a little bit surprising. So I think there is something of a good aspect to it because, as I said, I think they've overdone the investment track. So I'm glad they're not rushing in with a new, huge investment-oriented stimulus. Uh, and the fact that they're not panicking, you know, I think that's basically a good thing. Uh, but there is a set of structural reforms that would really help Chinese people, help the economy grow uh, on a more sustainable path, and they're not really pursuing the reform agenda very aggressively. So I'm disappointed they're not pursuing reform. Without the reform, a big stimulus would probably be a mistake. Uh, so it, it, you know that that's my reaction to the situation. Right, and and. Do you think uh, from what you're seeing so far, I mean, it's hard to tell, right? It's always hard to tell with the Chinese economy because we know they've been trying to fuel consumer demand for a very long time. That doesn't seem to have happened. Certainly the COVID lockdowns had a big impact on the economy. So we're kind of in uncharted territory when it comes to watching what's happening there. Do you think this is the time that there's going to be a significant crisis there? Well, there's a significant slowdown. There's no question about that. I guess I'm more in the camp it thinks that we're going to see this continuing slowdown or they've already slowed down. So the continuing growth at a rather modest level of maybe 4%. I'm not in the camp that thinks they're likely to have a big visible crisis uh, or a so-called lost decade, for example. I think it, it's more a situation where with the right reform, you know, they could probably grow above five for the next decade and they're not doing that. And so they're likely to slow down first to four and then probably below four. And that's a good performance for a middle income developing country. It's just not exceptional. Right. And, and I guess this was going to happen to China's economy at some point. It couldn't grow at those exponential rates year after year after year uh, for, for, for time, for, you know, for all time. They were going to run into these things at some point. But it makes a big difference for Chinese people. Mm -hmm. If you slow down from that 10 percent, which you and I can agree was not sustainable, if you slow down from that 10% to something around six and then five, sustained over time, that's still going to dramatically increase people's living standards. If you slow down quickly toward four and below, things are improving a little bit, but but really very slowly. And it's still a pretty poor country. You know, it's about, I would say it's roughly one quarter of real Canadian living standards once mm -hmm. you adjust for price differences. Uh, so pretty big differential. Uh, China has a lot of potential, but it's just not doing the reforms it needs to meet that potential right now. Never the most transparent of places. I was surprised to see, or maybe not surprised to see, they stopped publishing youth unemployment rates recently because that's an issue as well. Yeah, that's a really childish response to bad information <laughs> or a bad situation is to say, you know, we're embarrassed that there's this enormous youth unemployment. Uh, so let's stop publishing the data. You know, but the underlying problem there, it, it's quite, I think the Chinese demographics are really interesting for an economist, you know, because they have this sharp drop in fertility, partly encouraged by that one child policy. So the labor force now is going to decline, but they have also had a big investment in 
kids going to college. Mm-hmm. So more than half of young people go to college in China now. They're turning out 11 million college graduates per year. So they're starting to have shortages in the labor force because the old people are retiring and there aren't enough young people to replace them. And yet the young people they have, they're probably overeducated. They're probably not jobs for 11 million college grads. And they're not going to be happy going to work in the factories. You know, factories are short of labor looking for workers and the college educated are not going to go work there. So you got a mismatch. Uh, and and that's a very difficult situation. And so what do they do? As you said, Ben, let's just stop publishing the data now that more than 20% of college, well, what, what they publish is more than 20% of youth are unemployed. And then I'm adding the fact that more than half of those are college grads. David Dollar is an economist. He was the U.S. Treasury's economic and financial emissary to China. He was based in Beijing back then about the same time I was there. He's now a senior fellow with the Brookings Institute. Uh, I mean, there's always been a lot of talk about China's impact on the global economy. What might this slowdown, uh, what kind of impact might this slowdown have on the rest of us? So China is the biggest trade partner for more than 100 different countries. Uh, And so China's slowdown definitely has an impact on a lot of other countries, different types. Canada, actually, I don't know the details of whether you export directly to China. We do, but not a ton. Given that you export, you know, oil and gas and food, whether you directly export to them or not doesn't really matter in a sense because their demand is a big factor in setting the world price for what Canada exports. So all kinds of countries are exporting food, oil, gas, various types of minerals. These minerals we're using in now in electric vehicles, cobalt. And a lot of countries export them directly to China. But as I said, even if you don't export directly to China, China's demand affects the prices of those. So China's slowing down. There's going to be less investment happening in China, less construction, less demand for all kinds of metals, uh, definitely for energy. Uh, Now, for a lot of consumers around the world in different countries, this can be a positive. You know, your your consumer prices are tied to these international prices for things like energy and minerals. Uh, so it may hurt some Canadian companies that export those products. Uh, but on the other hand, it could be a boon for Canadian people who are buying gas and using it in their cars or using energy to heat their homes, obviously. Uh, so I would say that you know, there are a lot of countries around the world where it's going to have a fairly big impact, a mix of negative and positive. Uh, but, you know, since China is a big net importer of these things I'm talking about, uh, you're going to have probably more pain than gain for a lot of countries. I should quickly add that they import not just the primary products I emphasize. They import a lot of machinery from Germany, for example, and Northern Europe. Europe has a lot more trade with China than the U.S. does. Uh, So you're going to have some advanced economies. Japan, South Korea are good examples. You're going to have some advanced economies that are deeply integrated with China that get hurt. You're going to have primary exporters like Canada and many other countries that are going to get hurt. Uh, So it'll have an impact on pretty widely. Right. I guess one of the things that's interesting, though, is that the debt issue within China itself is very much contained to China itself, I, I gather, in terms of who owes who money, where, what banks have lent. This is kind of an internal uh, Chinese issue. I don't know if that's 100% correct or not. Yeah, it's 98% correct. And, <laughs> and that's why I think slowdown is more likely than big visible crisis, because the big visible crisis, especially in a developing country, 
you know, it usually occurs because the country's relying a lot on foreign financing. And for some reason, the foreign financing dries up uh, and, and that precipitates a financial crisis. China relies on its own savings for financing. So the, all these bad investments, empty apartments, overbuilding the infrastructure, it's basically Chinese people who are going to pay for that. You know, anybody who put money in a bank there, you know, they're going to get negative real interest rates for the foreseeable future. Uh, and they don't have options. They can't move their money to a nice place like Canada, for example, or the United States. Right. What an interesting job you had when you were there as well. I, I'm sure it continues as an observer of the country as well. I mean, China has been a remarkably interesting economy to look at. It's on its own in some ways. No, I completely agree. And Ben, you and I were living there in what I think of as the golden age. You know, for me, it was around started around 2004 and went to 2013. You know, I remember like going to salons, you know, some some Chinese person, you know, middle class person, intellectual would open up his or her house uh, and we'd have, a you know, 25 or 30 uh, interesting, thoughtful people, some from the expatriate community, most of them Chinese. Uh, debate would be in a mix of Chinese language and English usually. Uh, and and we'd have a pretty open debate about all kinds of issues. You know, there was a real openness there for a while. Uh, and then unfortunately that, you know, I, I moved out, so did you, but my sense is from talking to people, you don't really have that kind of open debate at this point. And if you don't have that kind of people-to-people exchange, then I think it's really hard to have deep understanding. Yeah, our, our, our stereotypes of each other can be pretty, pretty hard to shake too. Uh, David Dollar, thank you so much. Great pleasure talking to you, Ben. Thanks.